Amen. If you have your Bibles, would you take them out? Or your phones or your bulletins, whatever you use to follow along, and turn in those things to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we're going to read today the first 21 verses of this chapter. So we're continuing our, our study through this book, not just in the holiday season, but even continuing right through the end of the book of Luke. So today we read this very familiar passage, the story of the birth of Jesus and the announcement of the angels singing out in the fields by night to the shepherds. Uh, so this is a well-known story, but we get to hear the word of the Lord read for us again today. If you're able, can I ask you to please join me in standing for the reading of God's holy word. This is Luke 2, starting in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this wonderful Christmas story. And Lord, though it's familiar to us, we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would open our eyes, that we might see all of the wonder and the beauty and the glory that this passage of scripture has for us today. Lord, may we hear it. May we trust, believe, and obey it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In 2012, there was a documentary that came out that was called The Central Park Effect. And it followed the lives of a certain number of New Yorkers who go birding in Central Park. 
And in this documentary, you meet a, a guy named Chris Cooper, who's a birder there in, in New York City, and he says that one of the challenges of being a birder is that you constantly have to explain to people why you're a birder, and what birding is, and what is so great about going somewhere to look at a bird, and studying birds and getting to know them. And he says you are, he's always doing this and trying to convince people that yes, this is a, a thing that people do, and it's fun, and it's worthwhile, and it's satisfying. But many people, he says, simply don't understand that. They don't get the, the allure of birding and identifying and studying birds. And uh, many of you know I myself am a birder, and I can certainly testify that this is true. I have gotten many quizzical looks when I have told people that I am going on a trip specifically to see a bird. And so Chris Cooper says he had to defend his hobby so often that he ended up making a list. And he called it the seven joys of birding. And it is a great list. Uh, he describes seven of the most rewarding parts of going birding. I really resonated with his list, but I'm not going to spoil it for you here. You have to go and watch it. It's called the Central Park Effect. It's very good. But as I thought about this, it occurred to me this week that it, there's a similar thing with Christmas. Many people, oftentimes us included, don't understand the real joy of what Christmas is all about. And even for those of us who do know the real joy of what Christmas is about, it's easy for us at this time of year to simply get caught up and perhaps be swept along with all of the busyness, all of the, the hassle, all of the crowds, uh, all of the trappings of celebrating Christmas to the extent that perhaps it's even possible we miss the real joy of Christmas. So I decided I was going to make a list. And I call this the six joys of Christmas. Not that I couldn't think of a seventh to match, but there were six really obvious ones in this passage. And so I want us to look at this story, and because it's so familiar, here's how we'll look at it today, to see the six joys of Christmas specifically from Luke chapter 2. And here they are. I'll say them again as we go through them. But they are the joy of Christ's humility, the joy of God's providence, the joy of good news for the poor, the joy of salvation, the joy of angel armies singing, and the joy of hope. So the first joy of Christmas is the joy of Christ's humility. If you look at the first seven verses of this chapter that we read, you notice right away there are two kings in this paragraph. Right? There are two kings in this story, and the comparison between the two is very striking. The first king we meet is Caesar Augustus, and Augustus was the first emperor of, of what would become the Roman Empire, and he was, by all accounts, an effective and influential emperor. However, we just read the picture that it were given in these verses, and we see the picture is one that emphasizes his pride and his power. We see his pride uh, we're told there in the, the very first verse that a decree has gone out from Caesar Augustus that all the world needs to be registered. Right, that's quite a decree. Caesar makes a decree that every single person, all of the world, needs to be registered in order to be taxed. And of course, as the Roman emperor, uh, he, he would have and did see himself as king of the whole world and, and perhaps thought 
it was legitimate for him to make such a decree that every other person in the world needed to pay taxes to him, and thus they needed to be registered so he would have a list. As it turns out, we know from history that Augustus later would go on to add son of the divine to his title. And so we could say in this passage, we have not just two kings, but two who are called the son of God. And again, the comparison and the differences between them could not be more striking. We see his pride, we see his power as well when we see that he has the ability to make such a decree and to enforce it. Here are Mary and Joseph, at great inconvenience to themselves, making this trip. This is about 70 miles, right? They lived up in Nazareth, which is the northern part of Israel, up by the Sea of Galilee. And it was 70 miles from there down to Bethlehem, which was just south of Jerusalem. And in a day before cars, that's quite a trip, especially when your wife is nine, month, nine months pregnant, or your betrothed is nine months pregnant. And yet they made the trip. They had no option except to make this trip on a donkey. And so we have this picture of the first king that we meet. But verse 7 introduces us to another king. And another one who's called the son of God. But, but here we meet a king who's completely different. Right? Who's, who's almost exactly the opposite. Uh, here we see a king who has, in reality, has far more glory. But absolutely no pride. We meet a king who has, in reality, again, far more power. But there's nothing in this story to indicate that he's flexing his power in order to inconvenience others or convenience himself or to, to force the powerless to submit to him. Jesus is a king who comes in utter humility. His birth, his birth, the most significant event that the world has seen to this point. Right, the incarnation of the Son of God being born uh, is nevertheless presented in the lowest possible way. Here he is wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And this is because there's no room in the inn. Here is the king who comes. The king goes to check into the hotel and, and the innkeeper says, I'm sorry, we're booked. Why don't you stay in the barn? What king on earth is there who would respond by saying, oh, okay, and, and would go to the barn? Right? And yet here is Jesus, the king of kings from all eternity, has all the power in the universe at his fingertips, and he does that. Right? Nobody gets kicked out of the inn in order to make room for him. Nobody has to be put down in order that he could have more comfortable accommodations. He comes as a picture of humility. And so even here, right, the very first time we meet Jesus, this story of his birth ends up being a picture, right, just in miniature, of his work itself. Right, it's a picture of his humility. Mark 10.45 would describe his work, and it says this, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he's already about that. Right, Philippians 2 says... Uh, have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. And he's already about that. In his birth, we see the humility and the joy of Christ's humility, that here is a king who loves his people, who comes to serve them, not to be served by them. That's the first joy. 
The second joy of Christmas that we see in this passage, I call it the joy of God's providence. The joy of God's providence. Because here in these first seven verses, we have this beautifully orchestrated picture of the providence of God in ordering the lives of his children so that everything happens just exactly according to his plan. Right, so again, we recall, here's Mary and Joseph. They lived in Nazareth, the far northern part of Israel. But we have the prophecy. Micah 5 says that, that Jesus, the coming one, is going to be born in Bethlehem, which is south of Jerusalem, uh, about 70 miles apart. Again, but, but that is not a problem for God. Right? Mary and Joseph are in Nazareth. The prophecy says Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. That is not a problem because in God's providence, the pregnancy coincided exactly with Caesar Augustus's decree that all the world had to be registered. And it so happens that Joseph, being of the line of David, needed to go to his uh, ancestral home there in Bethlehem for this registration. And so he tells us, Luke tells us the story, right? It just happened that this is the first registration under Quirinius. It's the first one in quite some time. And it just so happens that it comes at exactly the perfect moment when Mary is nine months pregnant to get a pregnant woman from Nazareth to Bethlehem just in time for Jesus to be born. And we see a picture in that of the way that God's providence works because, once again, think of this. The birth of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of the Son of God, the most significant event in history up until this point. And how does God plan it out? He plans it out just using ordinary events. In fact, if we think about it, he plans it out using very inconvenient events. I have to imagine if I put myself in the place of Joseph, I would have been awfully annoyed. I, it, my wife is nine months pregnant and now I have to go to Bethlehem to register because Caesar wants us to pay more taxes and so he has to count everybody. For that, I have to go to Bethlehem. But God was using this. God had planned this all out well in advance and he is using this circumstance as annoying as it must have been as, as strange as it must have been, no doubt no one at that moment would have seen any divine plan, any divine fingerprints on Caesar's decree. And yet there were. God had planned to use that event to accomplish his own purposes to bring about the fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. There is some joy in God's providence. We never know what he's up to. We never know what he's up to in the good, the bad circumstances of our lives, those things which, from our perspective, seem to have no divine fingerprints on them. Seem to just be so annoying for us. These things that are completely wrong in terms of our own timing. They're so opposite of, of how we would have planned it if we were in charge. And yet these seven verses are just a, a perfect, every piece is falling into place to accomplish God's design. So we see the joy of God's providence. The third joy of, of Christmas that we see in this passage is the good news for the poor. The joy of good news for the poor. And here we go down to verse 10 and, and we know the angel's announcement. And we see who it's for. It's for all people. Right? An announcement. Uh, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Uh, which is in itself one of the, the joys of Christmas. But there is one thing that stands out, and that this announcement is made first and foremost 
to shepherds right, in the fields abiding with their sheep in the middle of the night. We look at just the setting of this announcement. It's totally the middle of nowhere. Uh, there's nothing going on except a flock of sheep and the shepherds who are watching them at night and who are on the night shift. This is out in the middle of nowhere. This is not what we would call the 30-mile the zone. Right? This is not the, the, the center of cultural action where everything is happening and all the, the paparazzi are gathering so they don't miss anything. This is 100 miles from there. This is the middle of the fields at night. And there's, I, I just picture this as perhaps the most dramatic scene shift in all of history. Right? From focusing on the birth of Jesus, here is the incarnation of the Son of God, this enormous event that turns the course of history. And the scene shifts to shepherds in the middle of the night. Nothing is going on. The middle of nowhere. And yet, what happens there? Again, I think this tells us something of who Jesus is and what he has come for, is that, that we have a Savior here who has not come first and foremost for the rich and the famous. He hasn't come first and foremost for the powerful, for the healthy, the righteous, right? Those who think so highly of themselves. Jesus came for the lost. Jesus is the shepherd who pursues the sheep who go astray. He comes, he says, it's not the, the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And it's not the, the righteous who need a savior, but the unrighteous. Jesus has come for the least of these. This shows here that, that the, these angels would come and make their announcement not in king's palaces but in a shepherd's field that Jesus comes for all people, yes, but especially for the humble and the poor, the poor in spirit, the weak, the meek, the marginalized, those who need the good news. Now I'm reminded that this is a time of year when, when if we're honest, that it can be a time for, for posing, for posturing, uh, really, do we ever send out accurate Christmas cards? No, we try to send out the best, prettiest Christmas cards. We pick the best possible photo from the entire year right, to represent who we are. But Jesus didn't come for Norman Rockwell paintings of perfection. Jesus came for those who don't have it all together. Jesus comes for the least of these. Jesus comes for the poor shepherds, the ones who are so low on the totem pole that they get the night shift. And he comes and he announces good news. And that's the joy of good news for the poor. The fourth joy of Christmas is the joy of salvation. The joy of salvation. Now this, of course, is the very heart of Christmas. And if we miss this, we, we miss everything. Right? This is, of course, the main point of the passage of all the things that those angels in that sky could have said they said one thing, to you a savior is born. At the main point that they focus on, he is a savior. And we must not miss that. Because if we miss that, we're, we literally miss everything about Christmas. We miss the main point, that Jesus came to save, and he came to save sinners. And he came to save sinners who could not save themselves. Sinners who, by their sin had offended God and had done what was deserving of death and who stood condemned, who stood before his wrath for their sin justly 
bearing the weight of that condemnation that they deserved it. And they deserved death for their sins because we know the wages of sin is death. Jesus came to save those people. He came to stand in their place. He came to say to them that their sins were forgiven because he was taking their sins that were on their shoulders. He took them onto his. And and having taken those sins on his shoulders, he would go to the cross and he would bear the wrath of God in their place. That the condemnation that was due to fall on all those who believe would fall instead on Jesus. That he went to the cross for them. And so Jesus comes as a savior. This is the very thing the angel tells Mary that they are to call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That is why he comes. That is the point of Christmas, a very particular purpose, that he would come to live this perfect life and then go to the cross to die a perfectly cursed death, a sacrificial death, an atoning death, a substitutionary death in the place of all those who would believe. And so, this is the fourth joy, but really this is, this is the main point, and we must not miss this, that Jesus came to save. Sometimes when we talk about Christmas, we are tempted to speak only in sort of generalities, right? We talk about the blessings, uh, the, the love, the joy, the peace, the harmony of Christmas time, and, and those are good. I hope we experience something of those during Christmas. But Christmas is about salvation, Christmas is about salvation. Think of, just by way of illustration to to help us think of this, think of the last time you did something or saw something that was just so spectacular, that it made such an impression on you, one of your favorite things you had ever done that you still remember. After it, did you go back to loved ones and just speak in generalities? Or did you recount for them detail by detail, exactly how amazing it was. All the glory, you just wanted to impress on them a sense of just how great that experience was. See, that's what happens here. Jesus comes to save, and yet sometimes we miss the glory of it, and and we're tempted to speak only in generalities. But that just shows when we do that, we're not feeling the full weight of the glory of what Jesus has come for Because when you experience something with this much glory, you speak in detail, right? You revel in the details of every little moment of it. And so let's just be simple and straightforward today. Christmas is about salvation. It's about Jesus coming for those who could never save themselves and coming to save them through his life and death. In John Newton's song, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, he has this line where he says, Fading are the worldling's pleasures, all its boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. Solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. I think that's Christmas. The solid joy and the lasting treasure of celebrating Christmas is something that only Christians truly can appreciate. The, the, the joy of Jesus coming as a savior for his people is the heart of Christmas, and that's something none but Zion's children can really know. And those are solid joys, and those are lasting treasures. So let me encourage you this Christmas not to miss the joy of salvation.
that was four. Number five, the fifth joy of Christmas is the joy of angel armies singing. I like this one. The joy of angel armies, and I say armies because that's what a host is in the Bible. When it says there is a host of angels, we often picture in our minds, I think, this uh, very well-dressed angel choir with their white choir robes and singing a well-rehearsed uh, chorus piece in, in four-part harmony. But that's not what a host is. In, a, in the Bible, a host is simply another word for an army. It's a military host. And when the Old Testament speaks of the Lord God of hosts, that is the Lord God in charge of all the angel armies. And here is this picture, which I, the scene is just so glorious. That, that first, it's one angel. It's one angel who sort of, uh, you know, the battle lines are drawn up and this one guy comes out to offer terms. And, and the one angel comes forward and he gives his announcement, this notice. Uh, and he tells them the update that a savior has been born to them. And as soon as he has finished giving his update, the entire army is there with him. And the sky is filled with these angels fully dressed for spiritual cosmic warfare. And they come, but they come not to fight. They come to sing. And there they are filling the heavens, singing a song of celebration. Singing the celebration because it is the time of the hero's arrival. And they are celebrating. And so there's this great contrast in this passage that there's this very quiet scene, right? Totally off the beaten path in this barn where a baby is born and laid in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes. And out in the, the middle of the fields, the angel armies are bursting into song and filling the heavens to declare what was happening. There's this great contrast that we see, right? And and we get a little picture of it. Uh, there's this scene in Revelation chapter 12. And it's this passage that is describing the birth of Jesus. But it does so from the spiritual perspective. And it uses these almost mythological sounding terms to describe it. Where it describes a woman who is giving birth. And she gives birth to a male child who is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And immediately the dragon swoops in and attempts to devour the child. But the child is snatched away up into heaven where he is protected. And uh, he goes before the throne of God and war breaks out between the angels and the dragon. All right, that's giving us this sort of spiritual picture behind the scenes of what is happening in Luke chapter 2. Right? With our physical eyes, we see only this very quiet, peaceful scene of a baby being born. And we see that nobody is taking notice. But there are such glorious spiritual realities that are going on in that moment where the dragon is enraged and is attempting to devour that child and yet the child is snatched up and protected in heaven before the throne of God. And the angel armies all burst out in celebration and song and sing glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace with those with whom he is pleased. There is this rejoicing. It's the rejoicing of the angels that they see the reality that God's plan is all coming together. Right? And this, this is that moment. The hero is coming. Jesus, the Savior, is being born. The angels are rejoicing, and our hearts are rejoicing with them. That's the, the fifth joy in this passage. 
The sixth joy is this one, the last one. And that is the joy of hope. The joy of hope. We get in this passage a little sneak preview here, just a peek of heaven breaking through onto the scene. The glory of God shines. The angels are praising God. Jesus is being exalted. But it's only for a moment. We get this great and glorious scene, but think about what happens in the next moment. Everything's dark again. Everything's quiet again. The angels are gone. Everything is still dark, quiet. Isn't that oftentimes what life is like? There's these short brief glimpses of glory where perhaps our hearts are filled with joy because we get the spiritual sense of the glory of Jesus and his nearness to his people and his salvation and we rejoice in that and then in the next moment everything is dark again. Normal life comes back. And I would suggest that perhaps everywhere in the first 65 books of the Bible when God's glory comes it's only temporary or it's filtered through a veil, or it's shadowed by a cloud, or it's blocked by part of a rock. We only get these brief glimpses of the glory of God everywhere in these passages. Uh, But the glory of God, the kingdom of God, is like a mustard seed. It starts small, the smallest seed in the garden, and then it grows, and it grows, and it grows until it's the largest plant in the garden and all the birds of the air come and they take refuge in its branches. And in the sense, the birth of Jesus Christ is small, this little glimpse of glory, but the kingdom of God grows and it grows and it grows until we get to the 66th book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and, and we get to the end of that book. And a time is coming, we get this glimpse of a time that's coming when the glory of God is no longer revealed to us in short glimpses, but in its permanence. When Jesus Christ will be all in all, and the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, and this glimpse will become our regular, constant reality. We see Revelation 21, uh, that these things, let me even read a few of the verses for us. Revelation chapter 21 It's describing this vision that John is seeing of the new heavens and the new earth. And he says in 21.1, I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. Isn't that just like Christmas? The dwelling of God is with man. He will dwell with them and he will be their God and they will be his people. Except here, when we've gotten to this place in Revelation 21, the key difference is that by now all evil, all sin, all of the curse has been dealt with. It's all been put away. Death is no more. And so when God is coming down out of heaven to dwell with his people, he comes for good. He comes to be their God. Towards the end of that uh, chapter, it says there's no temple there anymore. And there's no temple because God himself is there. 
His glory will no longer be hidden inside of a temple where it's shrouded by all the veils and the walls and the smoke. He will just be there with his people and we will dwell with him. And it says at that time there will be no more crying, death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. That's the joy of Christmas right there. It's this hope that in the coming of Jesus to be born in a manger, that is only the beginning. He comes, yes, he comes and he lives for for 33 years and he dies and he ascends back into heaven. But that's only the the beginning, the preview, right? The first glimpse of the glory that shall be ours when we will dwell with him in glory and sin and death and crying will be no more. Death will be no more. Jesus will have made all things new. If not for Christmas, there's no Revelation 21. And so when we celebrate Christmas, it's not just about uh, the incarnation. Yes, that's, that's what it is but it also points forward. It points forward to that glorious day when Jesus shall be all in all. And so I want us to think on these these things this Christmas. I want us to make sure it's... I know how easy it is to get caught up in the trappings of Christmas. Uh, Some of it good, some of it really anxiety-producing because it's a hassle and there's stress. But here's the list. These are the six solid joys of Christmas that none but Zion's children... No. Friends, let's think on these things and bring our hearts before the Lord together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his humility in coming to be born as a baby at exactly the right time in your sovereign plan. We thank you that he came as a savior to take away all our sins. We thank you that he came in the hope of that eternal day when he shall be all in all. And Lord, we thank you that by your grace and your mercy, we have a solid hope that we shall be there with him. So Lord, in the midst of this very busy holiday season, may these be the joys that sustain our hearts. May these be the joys that give us peace, that give us rest. Lord, may may Christmas for us be all about Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.